0: I just wanna say thank you as we begin here this morning. Um, I'm thankful for a lot of things. I'm thankful to my leaders who allowed me to take that break over these last couple of months. I'm thankful to staff and Michael and Tyler and Loretta and others, uh, the good folks who have picked up for me in my absence. <clears throat> not used to talking for two hours on a Sunday morning, I'm sorry, <clears throat> and I don't have COVID. So uh, that's what I I should mention. Uh, Anyway, thank you for those who covered for me in my absence uh, and taking extra weight on their shoulders. And I I appreciate that. And thanks to many of you who sent prayers, encouraging notes and thoughts over the last few months. And they are appreciated um, greatly. Um, I had someone send me a nice note recently. um, And I'm going to put this up here. I was told, my wife told me to clean this mirror before I brought it today. I didn't do that. And so someone said, at least your mirror is as dirty as mine is at home after first service. So if it looks dirty, it's my fault, not my wife's. Okay. um, And so uh, someone sent me this nice note or this this line in a nice note that I received this past week that simply said this, that mirrors are hard things to look into sometimes. You ever feel that? Um, that is true, physically, depending on on your level of beauty in the world, but uh, it's—I mean that metaphorically. Um, that's kind of been a a good summary of what I've tried to do this past few months. Um, whenever you look in the mirror, you see blemishes, imperfections scars that maybe uh, you're not pleased with. Um, And and looking into the mirror uh, to reflect, to refocus, repent, rearrange, re-energize, it's not always enjoyable, but I pray that I come out the other side with it a little bit better off than I was before. Um, James also, though, describes the Bible as a mirror in James 1.22 when it uh, talks about looking into the mirror of God's word. And so sometimes you look in the mirror and it's an uncomfortable thing if it's just you. But when you look in the mirror of God's word, not only do you see um, some flaws, you're confronted with your sinfulness, but, but you also see grace. You see God's leading into the life he invites us for. And so um, mirrors are sometimes hard things to look into, but they are, are necessary, right? They are helpful when used rightly. And so uh, I share that as a metaphor, kind of what I've been doing, but I also share it because I think it fits well the theme of our day today, we're going to talk about racism. Um, which this may be my one shot to preach for you. Preaching on a topic like this can end your life or quickly or career. But I want to try not to do that. We want to deal with this issue with grace and kindness today. Um, but it's certainly a relevant theme, right? We look at this theme, and uh, um, I, I think that statement is still true. It's hard to look in the mirror. Um, Because sometimes we talk about race, uh, it brings up a lot of things, a lot of emotions, a lot of experiences. And so what we are seeing, though, and wrestling with, um, I don't know if it's good news or just news. I guess it's just news because it's not good. It's the idea that this isn't new. We've been dealing with these things for a long, long, long time. Paul even described his world before he met Jesus. And these words in Titus chapter 3, verse 3 when he said this, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy. There's where it starts, right? But then he uses this phrase, hated by others and hating one another. And really what's what's at the root of racism is very much that. It's malice, it's envy, it's it's hatred towards one another. It's being hated. It's just that those relational negative emotions that just feed so negatively and so painfully into the lives uh, of one another. And so that phrase hating and being hated has certainly taken on many forms over time. You can look through history and find lots of ways that one people group has has shown their hatred as just envy, animosity, selfish ambition, greed, whatever it may be. And it surely is manifesting itself in our culture right now, right? There's a a level of hatred and anger and animosity just floating around our culture right now. And it's hard. If you're looking from a mood for 2020, I don't think Paul's words, hated and being hated, is is a bad description of the mood of 2020. It just seems like it's all around us. And it's easy for us to get sucked into that, that stream, That stream of of negative, that stream of anger, that stream of insult, that stream of uh, uh, I'll talk, no listen. And it's easy to do that. But God's word is helpful to us and it calls us not to just talk more. As James would later earlier say in his books, it's better uh, to listen um, and talk less, listen more, talk less, be angry less. And, and, And that mirror I think is helpful for us. And so As I preach this sermon today, I I, I preach it from a perspective, right? As we all approach the issue of racism, um, I am a white guy, right? I was born and raised in an all-white town. Uh, I went to an all-white school all 12 years of my life. I went to a college that was mostly white. I ministered in three towns, great places, loved every one of them, and churches that were very much white. And so my perspective on this issue I have to be honest, comes from a a white guy's perspective. It can be tempting to not take this issue seriously uh, because I've not lived in other people's shoes. It can be tempting to even naively and arrogantly probably even say, well, what's all the fuss about? It's 2020, things are different now, uh, so what could be so bad? But we have ample evidence that this struggle is a real one if we're listening, if we're paying attention to people Um, I remember many years ago being shocked because this isn't normal um, occurrence. Being shocked when I was confronted on a Monday morning. Uh, Mondays are never good days for preachers, but it was a Monday and uh, I was confronted with a great deal of anger by an individual uh, about something that happened in our children's musical the day before. Uh, the kids had done a beautiful job of presenting a message and, and Jesus and all kinds of great things. But in the course of that, we had a black child and a white child who were playing the role of a married couple. And I remember the anger and the vitriol that was brought at me, at us, because we had allowed that to happen. And that just woke my eyes up to think, man, that's, there's attitudes and thoughts and things and passions that are deep. And I and, um, remember the, the negative feeling I left that day with. Um, And so that's always reminded me that, that, yeah, there's even in people that, that all of us, we wrestle with some of these things. And so a mirror is a helpful thing when it comes to this issue of racism to be able to look and say, you know what, I may not be overtly doing things, but maybe it's helpful sometimes to look in the mirror and see, what am I doing? What am I not doing that maybe could be helpful to this? Is there something that I could do that would help this situation be better? You see, there are attitudes that are deep seated in, in every culture, including our own, and I don't think that that attitude is shared by many, but it was certainly shared that day with me and it was real. And so I fully admit that I don't know what it's like to grow up and live in a world as a person of color or to live as a minority. I've traveled on enough mission trips to know how awkward that feels, but it's just always for a short term when I know I'm going home back to my comfortable place. But it's, it's hard. And so I've been trying to listen and to learn and to read and to pay attention over the last few months and I've tried to do a little mirror-looking uh, on this issue, um, and I've tried to listen and read people's thoughts, not just people's thoughts to remind me and reinforce what I thought I already thought, but who challenge me and who try to make me see the world in a little different way. And so, while mirrors are hard things to look into sometimes, uh, we sometimes are better when we take the time to stop and look and listen. Before I came back to work this week, uh, Michael and Tyler had reached out to to some of our own folks on this issue. Uh, They had reached out to Walter and Tammy Woods. Walter's a black man. Tammy is his wife. And so we reached out to them um, over the course of the last few weeks here with everything going on just to say, give us your perspective. Just talk to us, help us to listen better that maybe if we're not in your shoes, but what's, what's, what would you say to us? And so uh, we put this together in a video. We're gonna let you read it here and, uh, and think about this, but just pay attention as you listen to your brother and, sisters, uh, brother and sister talk to us today. E first, I'm thankful for Walter and Tammy reaching out to share their thoughts on that with us. But as I have paid attention over the last few months and tried to give thought and as realized this was the sermon I was coming back to preach um, for being a break on, um, I just started to think, what could I do that helps us to be to be better, um, sometimes we, we wonder, what can I do? Well, I think it really starts with the kind of people that we are. Uh, James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18, presents a description of two different kinds of people, two different approaches to life. Um, and I think racism certainly is impacted by which choice you choose here. Um, he, James says this Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom or the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly and unspiritual and demonic. For where jealous, jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Um, but the wisdom from above is first pure, it is peaceable, and it is gentle, it is open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is shown in peace by those who make peace, those who are peacemakers. As I read those, I, I just couldn't help but think that those are... Uh, uh, those are two traits, two characteristics by which you can be known by. And I think it just matters. Well, I, I wanna choose the second of the ones that James describes, right? If I wanna make the world better, if I wanna allow the church to be a place that, that racism is addressed and, and lessened and, and people are loved and, and, and built up, um, it, that's certainly that description of James uh, as he talks about it being pure and being um, peaceable gentle, open to reason. What does open to reason it means? I, I listen to people. I understand people. I don't just make rash judgments. He talks about being impartial and sincere, full of mercy. All, and on he goes, that kind of life is going to begin to disperse um, the hatred that Paul described earlier from um, from Titus and so if we're going to be those kinds of people, I just try to think. Uh, there's lots of places in the Bible we could just jump into and, and find examples. I want to show you four of them. There's many more that we could do, but as we look into the mirror of God's Word, I would just take you to these places and ask you to reflect upon them. And, and as you do, some of them are going to be positive examples, things to aspire to. Some of them are going to be one of them, I guess, I like guess, going to be a negative example that we should shun in our life. But I think we can be driven Uh, or led forward into a better life with these um, settings. So the first one is this. Uh, I would take you to a throne in heaven. I would take you to a throne in heaven in the book of Revelation chapter seven. And while you're there, uh, John describes this beautiful scene, this scene that I think leads us to at least understand this is what God is up to in the world. While the world may have its own agenda, its own philosophies, its own ways of doing things, this is God's agenda That he has for those that he's working out in their lives in this earth. The first place a Christian must start when you think about, well, what should be my response to to racism is really, well, what is God's heart? What is God's mind? What does the Bible say on this issue in the pages of scripture? And so when we think of the issue of race, it's helpful to to go to the end of the book and begin to think, okay, well, well, where's God going with all this? Where are we all heading And I think that you get this key scene in the book of Revelation, chapter 7, that gives a very vivid description of what God wants and is working toward in history. Revelation chapter 7, beginning in verse 9, it says this, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. From every nation and tribe and people and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Uh, There's this beautiful scene and I would encourage you to read the entire chapter because it's just a beautiful, uh, encouraging passage. But uh, the thing I would draw you to is simply that phrase, that as John looked, he saw people from every nation, all tribes, peoples, languages. The scene of worship and revelation is a preview of the culmination of God's work in this world. All of God's people gathered around the throne to adore the One who loved and redeemed them by the gracious work of Jesus. And there is a lot of cool stuff there. But again, hear those that phrase: "From every nation, every tribe." people, and language. Now, if you were to close your eyes and imagine that picture, that scene, I hope that you realize the colorfulness of that setting. While it is a true statement that the color of your skin does not inherently give you more or less worth or value in God's eyes, that doesn't mean that your color or your culture doesn't matter. Because I look at this scene and I find it interesting that John is able to see in his vision that there are many cultures, there are many languages, many colors of skin gathered around that throne. The diversity of people worshiping Christ is highlighted here. All gathered there, and, and as Tyler said before, they are on equal footing. None are more valuable, none are less valuable. They have all been granted access to this place by the blood of Christ. None of them they're all level. The the the, the footing is level, as Tyler said before. Because Jesus is at the center, the one who captures their attention, who has captured their hearts and imaginations, there is no more focus on the issues that divided them, but they are brought together in oneness around Christ. And so, as you look at world religions, Christianity is a little bit unique In that it is not an ethnic religion. You can look at a lot of major world religions and while there are um, worshippers from all kinds of perspectives, oftentimes the predominant group that practices that religion tends to have a a similar ethnic or color uh, to them. Islam tends to be people of Middle Eastern descent, uh, although not true, but 80% of that stat I saw. Buddhism tends to be more Asian and those who adhere to that. Again, certainly not every place, but but the key foundation for it is. But Christianity always tends to jump across racial lines and, and ethnic cultural boundaries. It isn't limited to just one racial group. It started as just a Jewish group of people in the backwoods of the Roman Empire, but it quickly began to jump fences and and walls of of race and culture and other barriers. It quickly brought together people from a a broad uh, spectrum read through the book of Acts sometimes, just begin to take notes of, of all the times that a, a racial wall is bumped up against. All right, you start off with, again, just Jewish people, and pretty soon you get into the early chapters, seven, eight in there, and all of a sudden, what do you find? You find someone's preaching to the Samaritans. Now, if you study your Bible, you know that, that Jews and Samaritans, they hate each other, right? No one No one would bring those people together, but but Jesus brings those people together. They center their lives on Jesus and no longer are they worried about so much being Jews and Samaritans, but he brings them together. He, he jumps over a fence, a relational, uh, cultural barrier. He brings them together. You keep reading into chapter 10 and there's this huge uh, section where God has to go to dramatic means to get Peter to go in even to the home of a Gentile because Peter's been a good Jewish guy and he never did that. But God went to extreme measures to show Peter that I want them as much as I want you. And so by the end of chapter 10 of Acts, you've got another fence that is jumped and there's Jews and there are Gentiles together, brought together in the name of Jesus. Now it wasn't all hunky-dory. It was hard because mending or melding those things together was very, very difficult, but they were one in Jesus. And it just continues on. And so... Someone has described that the followers of Jesus, if you were to look at that scene around the throne, that probably 20% of them are followers from Africa, 20% are followers from Asia, 20% are from Europe, 20% from North America, 20% from South America. So just imagine that, that blending of color, a mosaic, someone described it. I think it was DC talk. Maybe, I don't know. Somebody described it as a mosaic that just, that it, it's a melting of all kinds of races, And so when we live out our world, it's easy for us to get a little nearsighted. We don't see the big picture. And so we see it only through the lenses of what we're familiar with and what we're comfortable with. But really, if you look at where the gospel is growing, um, it's in places where people have more black skin and brown skin than have white skin. And in fact, if it hasn't happened yet, there will be more Christians in China than there are in the United States uh, very soon. If it hasn't happened yet, and so when we look at this from a from a church perspective, from a Christian perspective, um, race is a very different issue because I want all the races together in in Christ because that's the goal. That's what John is showing us here in John chapter, or excuse me, Revelation chapter seven. And so it gives us this picture of where it's all going. It's kind of a culmination. Genesis chapter 12, what did God say to Abraham? Uh, Through you, through what I'm going to do through you, I'm going to bless all the nations on the earth. Matthew 28, go to all the nations and preach the gospel to them. Acts chapter 1, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to all the ends of the earth. And you find that culminating in that vision in in Revelation chapter 7. And so that's God's heart. That's God's goal that he's leading us to. And so if that's where he's trying to take us to, centered around Christ, um, gathered with races from all over the world, then how do we have that happen? I I would take you to a second place. There's a teacher's prayer on a mountain. I would take you to the teacher's prayer on on a mountain and just remind you of what Jesus prayed or taught us to pray in Matthew chapter six, when he said this, this then is how you should pray. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so, part of what Jesus lives out is he was constantly praying. He was good at praying and and listening to his father and talking to his father. And then he would come and he would treat people. He'd live with people and he would interact with all the people uh, that he interacted with in a a unique way. He loved people in a deeper way and he cared and he, he had clarity. Because I think a lot of times he was looking to heaven and say, well, how can I, how can I make it on earth as it is in heaven? And that certainly is true of race. And so as you and I begin to interact with people and we think about, well, how do I treat people? How do I speak about people? How do I think about people? Well, I need to ask the question, well, how does my father in heaven think about people and treat people and talk about people? And I should try to do the same. My life should try to emulate that on earth, on earth as it is in heaven, um, prayer of Jesus. But sometimes that change comes slowly. Sometimes it just happens slowly, right? Um, If you did your core 52 assignments this week, and by the way, we're about six months into this, and I might just remind you, um, do those assignments, right? Don't get bored with that. Just dive into those things. Because this week you were encouraged to read the book of Jonah. And the book of Jonah is a wonderful example, not a wonderful, it's a telling mirror that shows you, yeah, you can be a person really blessed by God, but then you turn around and you're just a hate-filled jerk in the next chapter, right? That can be true of our lives in a lot of ways. Um, and so I would take you to a tent near Nineveh and just remind you of Jonah and his story. All right, the story of Jonah, if you don't know it, is it begins in the early chapters. God comes to Jonah, he's a prophet, he's a prophet apparently a man who um, is a leader of some kind. So God calls Jonah the prophet. I want you to leave Israel and I want you to go to the city of Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian empire that I know there are people that you really hate and they're your sworn enemies. But I I want you to go there and I want you to preach because I'm going to destroy the city in 40 days and somebody needs to go tell them they need to repent. Well, Jonah wants nothing to do with that. So he gets... In a boat, and he sails the exact opposite direction. God sends a storm uh, to confront and stop Jonah. Jonah gets thrown into the ocean. God provides a large fish. Uh, The fish brings Jonah back. But in chapter 2 of Jonah, there's this beautiful prayer of repentance That Jonah praises God's graciousness, how God is kind to those who love him, uh, that God is just merciful. It praises God's mercy that Jonah is receiving from God. And so Jonah gets out of the fish. He goes to Nineveh and he goes and he obeys. But he does not obey with a heart that is pure. Because when you watch the results, um, Jonah goes to the city. It's a three-day journey. He continues to preach the, the citizens of Nineveh are, are struck to the heart. The king of Nineveh calls for a time of repentance and fasting uh, to, to change. And so in Jonah chapter 3, the last verse of chapter 3, you see this verse. When God saw that they, what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. And so God changes his mind. He's, he's going to show mercy to Assyria, to, to Nineveh. But what is Jonah's response? But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, chapter four, verse one. It displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was what? What's the word there? He was angry. He was angry that God would dare show mercy to a group of people that he hated. And so when Paul talks about hated and being hated, this is what it looks like, right? And he prayed to the Lord and said, "O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? So again, note how your love for your own country sometimes can even make your attitude towards those that God loves wrong. This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. And So what I want to do here, I want to read the rest of the chapter. It's not on the screen, but listen to it in Jonah chapter 4, verse 3 and following. He says, Now, O Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. So Jonah would rather die than see his enemies spared and even prosper in God's mercy. But the Lord replied, Have you any right to be angry? And Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, our tent, that we've come to visit. And he sat in its shade and he waited to see what would happen to the city the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. So he's angry. He's really happy because now he has shade, right? He has a vine that's giving him shade. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the vine so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die again and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you have a right to be angry about the vine? I do, he said. I am angry enough to die. What the Lord said, you have been concerned about this vine. What did that vine represent? His own personal security and happiness and comfort. You've been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it nor make it grow. It sprang up overnight and it died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and many cattle as well, should I not be concerned about that great city? Jonah is a man who experienced a great deal of grace and mercy and new chances from the Lord. But Jonah also represents a man who had a hard time letting go of anger, of his hatred towards the Ninevite people. And I think it just is a warning that Christian people can still fall victim to racism. Maybe not blatant, maybe not terribly, but it's just subtle ways that we can allow negative attitudes. And maybe it's not race. Maybe it's somewhere else that this land's in your own life. But when you look at where Jonah ends up, he's just a, a picture of what we don't want to become. A people who on one hand write beautiful poems in chapter 2 of our life about how great and gracious God is. But just a few moments later, we are full of anger and hatred towards somebody else. And at the heart of racism is certainly that. And so the tent near Nineveh is an ugly picture, an ugly reminder of what we must allow God to fight against. To look in the mirror regularly to say, God... Is there that kind of hatred? Is there that kind of indifference of misplaced priorities in my own life? Have I been silent when I should have spoken up? Have I been just turned a blind eye to something that I should have stopped? Or should I just plain old stop something that I, I'm doing this wrong? And so looking in the mirror can help us with that. But we'll never do that. Again, we look at the, the end, but the path to a heart that is right with God It's not found in just trying harder. It's found, the last place I wanted to show you, is a tree in Israel. There is a tree in Israel in which a man was hung. And on that tree, he made it possible for us to allow the hostility that lives in our hearts, sometimes towards others, to find a place to die. I don't know how the world deals with these kinds of issues. Actually, I do. You just look on the news. And the world has all kinds of ways of dealing with with racism and anger and hatred and injustice. But for Jesus' followers, there's a different way. We have a king to lead us, and so often it's easy to just get sucked into the world's ways. But Jesus presents a different way. His redemptive love that transforms all our relationships, both with God and with others, with each other. And he enters into our mess and he lifts us up. That's what Revelation chapter seven is celebrating. I want you to listen to Ephesians chapter 2, where Paul says this. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Or is that cross, that tree? For he himself is our what? He is our peace. He has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So he's talking partly about our hostility with God. Our sin creates that. He breaks that down, but he also has a, a, a horizontal effect between us by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace, there's that word again, that might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Just as Jesus died, that was also a picture of, of how our hostility. Our hatred can die as well. He is an example of of selflessness. Read chapter two of Philippians. We don't have time to go there, but uh, chapter two of Philippians paints this picture of, well, how do I learn to do all this? Well, Jesus in Philippians two has all the rights of God, but what does he do? He humbles himself, taking the form of a servant. And he died for those he loved. I love, if you look up later, uh, I think it's Luke chapter seven, verse 11. It's the story of a, of a widow who was on the way out of town to bury her son. And I love that verse because it says that Jesus saw her, that he saw her. And so many times when you read stories of Jesus interacting with people who are hurting, or overlooked, people who, uh, that most people wouldn't pay much attention to, you find him doing something like that. He looks at them. He listens to them. He asks questions about them. He cares about them. And most people don't or didn't. And we live in a world the same way. It's easy to lump people together, put them in a class, and just be done with them all. That's not the Jesus way. The Jesus way interacts. It asks questions. It listens. It cares. The Jesus way builds bridges, not walls. And and the Jesus way says, hey, you and I may not understand each other, but let's talk. Instead of throwing angry barbs at each other, let's talk. Let me understand you. And so, as we race, as we wrestle with the racial and cultural divides around us, one of the things that I think that I would bookend this with saying that it's important to see the end because there are days when it's hard. But it's important also to see Jesus. It's important to see Jesus because. His way is so different. And if you're not regularly going back and seeing him and reminding yourself of his way, we're gonna find ourselves being more and more like Jonah. Comfortable on the one hand, worshiping and adoring God for his mercy to us, but also quite comfortable with our anger and hatred towards people. And that ought not to be the case. And so we asked the question today, what do we do about racism? And I don't know. There's a lot of things that I don't know. But I know one thing we can do and can be is to be the kind of people that when we're in situations where we can make it better, we will make it better because we're those kinds of people. It's the kind of people that James talks about who, 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 are, who love purely, sincerely, reasonable. They're concerned. They want peace. They're peacemakers. And so may we be that. And we ask God for his help in us becoming that today. Father God, we thank you. We thank you that you have set an example of, of how the anger and the hostility can come to an end. We live in an angry world. And um, sometimes that anger is a little justified. There's all kinds of things that have happened, that will happen. And it's easy just to respond with anger and hatred. That's the world's way. Father, Jesus presents us a different way. And so, Father, may we see this issue, may we treat people from the perspective of of a kingdom perspective that we are striving to create here on earth what we see and what we know is and will take place in heaven. And so, Father, help us to be quick to listen, slow to anger, and slow to speak. May we be good listeners. May we, 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 we share grace. May we share love that we learn from Christ in difficult and angry situations. And may you be glorified through that. Help us, Father, because we can't do this on our own. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.